Good morning. The last time that Christ Church was with you and that I was ministering the word, we were beginning a sermon series on the book of Lamentations. And so you had the unfortunate situation of being at the front end of that spear or the tip of the spear of the lament and the sorrow that would flow for the next handful of weeks. And luckily for all of you that had to sit through Lamentations chapter 1, the sermon there, we have just finished the book of Lamentations at Christ Church. And this morning, we bring a new sermon series. And that's always exciting for me to start a new sermon series. And I hope it's excited for all of you as well. For all of you at Westminster, you can certainly follow along with us online if you so desire. And I figured that I dragged all of you through Lamentations 1 last time. And I dragged Christ Church through all of Lamentations So maybe it's time to move on to the joy and love of something like Philippians. Joy after sorrow. So this morning, we're going to start our journey through Paul's beautiful, profound, and relatively short, only four chapters, letter to the Philippians. Now, one of the things that we encountered in our study at Christ Church in the book of Lamentations was in general... Just how unfamiliar we are as a people of God with that particular section of the Bible. That particular set of poetry is very foreign to us. And that presents its own challenges. One of the only popular or widely known sections of all of Lamentations was that section from the third dirge, or the third lament, the third poem, in verses 23 And 24, which read, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That verse is probably familiar to all of you here at Westminster as well. And like those at Christ Church, it's probably familiar to you just because of the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Well, here in Philippians, we run into the polar opposite of that problem that we encountered in the book of Lamentations. In Lamentations, we saw a text that we were unfamiliar with. Here we find a text in an epistle that we might be overly familiar with. Philippians is arguably, pound for pound, the people's chant as far as familiarity goes. Philippians might be pound for pound the quotation champ of the Bible. There's just so many well-known and beloved sections of this only four-chapter epistle. I want to rattle off just a couple for you, a couple of my favorite sections here from Philippians. And I'm sure most of you will be thinking, yep, I know that one. I know that one. So let the word of God wash over you here for a minute. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Philippians 1.23-25, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Philippians 2, 1 through 3. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 3, 7 through 9, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And finally, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I mean, man, oh man, that's just a smattering. That's just a few. And it's beautiful that we know these lines. And I imagine almost all of you being well-churched knew almost all of those lines. If I paused, you could probably continue the sentence. And it's good to have those things in our memory, but to have them out of context might pose the danger of cheapening them. And we might even run the risk of misusing those texts. And oftentimes, the texts that we cite the most are the ones that I notice that people misuse the most. Philippians is often called Paul's epistle of joy. And indeed, it is a joyful letter. But it's a joyful letter with a dark, dark underbelly. It's a joy that is resting on the strange and eerie text and subtext that time is running out. The word joy is used 16 times in these four chapters. But this is joy in the midst of suffering. This is prison joy. All these beautiful verses about joy, those ones that you know that adorn your throw pillows, that fill up your wall art, that fill up your Instagram bios and your Facebook posts, the ones from your email subscripts. All of those posts about joy, they were written by a man, Paul, who was facing the death sentence. All of them come from the pen of a man who had everything stripped from him, and he saw very closely that the end was at hand. You know, impending imminent death That's a great catalyst to spurring on and bringing up big questions. Questions such as, what are the questions that should dominate the very little time I am giving here on earth? And for Paul, with the clock running out, he's going to ask questions like this. How does the church maintain itself against the threats of the world? And what does God promise us in our hour of need? Those are the types of questions Paul's going to ask in Philippians. So we're going to be exploring those questions and those themes throughout this sermon series on what has been called Paul's most gracious and unassuming of letters. Philippians, Paul's most gracious and unassuming of letters. So let's set the scene if we would. This letter is written to the church at Philippi. Philippi might remind you of words like philosophy, 
meaning the love of wisdom. And indeed, Philippi was a central city in the Greek world, the world that gave us philosophy. The city, it took its name from Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedonia. And if you know your ancient history, you'll know that after the Persian Wars, the Persian Wars, we're talking 5th century B.C., those Persian Wars where Themistocles and the Athenians, where they teamed up with the Spartans and other Greek city-states and defeated the invading Persians, where the West had overcome the onslaught of the East, big moment there in world history. After that, Greece, as countries are prone to do, as they're prone to do when they have no real outside threat to bind them together, Greece with Persia out of the picture, what did they do? Well, they tore themselves apart from the inside in the Peloponnesian War, a Greek civil war largely between Athens and Sparta. Well, that was the beginning of the end for Greece as a world superpower, and in swept Philip of Macedonia and his son, Alexander the Great. They swept in to conquer the Greek world, the world that Alexander loved so much. He admired and loved the Greek world. So we're talking about 350 B.C. here. So Philippi was named after that great Philip. And more recently, in respect to when Paul is writing Philippians, Philippi was the site of where Octavian, who would later be called Caesar Augustus, it's the site of where Octavian and Mark Antony defeated the rebel forces of Brutus and Cassius, those who had killed Julius Caesar. Pretty monumental event. The city then, Philippi, because of this all-important piece of history that happened there, it had become a major and important Roman city. After all, that's a very impressive heritage for a small little city. As one scholar put it, Philippi had become by this point Rome in miniature. Philippi was Rome in miniature. So Paul is writing to a city with a mighty and proud past. They had linkage to the Greek empire, linkage to Socrates and to Aristotle and to Plato. Their history includes Philip of Macedonia and Alexander the Great. And they have an incredible immediate past with Octavius and Anthony defeating the rebels, Brutus and Cassius. And they also have a very strong present when Paul is writing to them. As we just said, they are basically the Rome of the eastern part of the empire. Big, big heritage. And now they're going to hear the gospel. The good news of grace that is bestowed on one, not by man, not by the state. They're going to hear the gospel of free grace that has nothing to do with their family history. Nothing to do with their great heritage. But they're going to hear of a grace that comes totally from without. From God. And they're going to have this message delivered to them by a man who had quite a proud lineage himself. This letter is sent from Paul, who was a Roman citizen. It's a great honor. And yet, as he will tell this audience in chapter 3 of this letter, this is what Paul says to them. He indeed counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. For his sake, he suffered the loss of all things. And counted them as nothing but rubbish in order that he might gain Christ. Paul doesn't care about his past. 
his honor. And he's going to ask that the Philippians forget their past and their honor as well. And Paul doesn't just say in some abstract sort of theoretical manner that he counted everything as lost. Paul actually had suffered great losses. After all, he's writing this letter from prison. We see that right away in chapter 1, verse 12, where he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, there's some scholarly debate over where Paul is writing this letter from. Paul, after all, was imprisoned four times. But the majority of the scholars weigh in that he's probably writing from Rome at this time. So we can assume he's writing from Rome. But Paul has lost. He's lost greatly. And he's suffered and suffered greatly. And he's lost and he's suffered because the world's a hostile place. I'm sure many of you have felt this. The world is a hostile place. And Paul knows that firsthand. And since the world is particularly hostile to gospel growth, this epistle is going to constantly appeal to unity. It's going to appeal to togetherness in times of trial. Now, we always need unity as a church. We always need it. But we particularly need unity as the gospel is being pushed forth into new frontiers. Because the powers and the principalities of this world hate gospel growth. And so Paul is going to appeal again and again to the Philippians to show unity as we await the expectation of the day of the Lord. Waiting in expectation for the day of the Lord. That's another key theme in this letter. There's going to be at least six references to the imminent nature of the personal return of Christ. Six times, four chapters. Paul talks about the imminent nature of the personal return of Jesus. And if indeed Jesus is going to return, Paul wants those at Philippi to be ready. That's his chief concern. Christ is coming. He's coming soon. Be ready. I mean, he wants them to be ready because he loves this church. I think it's safe to say they're his favorite church. Now, oftentimes we don't like language like that. How could they be the favorites? You can't choose favorites. Well, Jesus can have a favorite disciple, John. Paul can have a favorite church, Philippi. And I can have a favorite child. <laughs> they know which one it is. So let's briefly turn to the text. This text written to this church that Paul loves so dearly. And today we're just going to look at the first two verses of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, 1 and 2. Look at the text with me. Paul and Timothy... Servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a young church. They were just recently founded, and they supported Paul financially while he was in prison. We see that right at the end of the letter in Philippians 4.18, where Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. There's such a close kinship with this group. Paul loves them so dearly, they've supported him in his mission, that Paul 
at the start of this letter, he foregoes his customary intro. This is not the way that Paul normally addresses people. And he simply says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. That's how he starts Philippians. Listen to the way that Paul normally starts his letters. Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. 1 Corinthians. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men. <laughs> Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Colossians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul here says in Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. Paul designates himself as a servant rather than as an apostle. He's being extraordinarily careful with these people he loves so dearly not to pull apostolic rank. Now, don't get me wrong. His self-designation is still honorable. As he is not so much a servant of Rome, which he certainly was as a prisoner, but he's a servant of Christ Jesus. And the word servant that you see there in your ESV text, it's literally translated slave. He designates himself as a slave. Now, this would be a repulsive self-designation to a dignified upper middle class Roman citizen. It would be repulsive to be called a slave. But that's what he does. And Paul only uses that word one other time in the letter. Do you know when he uses it? Does anyone remember offhand when he uses that repugnant word of slave? He designates himself a slave here in the intro. And then in Philippians 2, 6 and 7, he says this. Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, that is, of a slave. Well, if being like Jesus and being like Paul is repugnant, I pray that all of you here at Westminster and all of the saints at Christ Church are as repugnant as possible. I pray that all of you would be repulsive and repugnant just as Christ and Paul were repulsive and repugnant. So Paul doesn't open the letter by calling himself an apostle, as he so often does. Paul's not the head of my department coming to me or writing one of those emails. We've all received those emails that say, hey, Justin, as the head of the philosophy department, I was wondering if you would do X, Y, or Z. Because when worded that way, when somebody says, hey, Justin, as your boss, could you please do this? What does that mean? It means, Justin, do this because I'm your superior and I'm telling you to do, do so. That's not what he does in Philippians. The tone of Philippians from the very jump is all love. It's all familial warmth. Paul even sets Timothy on the same level as himself. Right? What does the text say? It says, Paul and Timothy. Servants of Christ Jesus. He's not one of those people so insecure as to insist that they be called by a particular title. He's not worried, oh no, maybe Timothy's going to share the same spotlight with me. A brilliant 20th century theologian has these words to say. He says, a hero 
a genius, a religious personality stands alone. An apostle has others beside him like himself and sets them on his own level. A hero, a genius, a religious personality, they stand alone. An apostle has others beside him like himself and sets them on his own level. That's what Paul's doing here with his buddy Timothy. We're just servants for Christ. So the letter is from two slaves for Christ, Paul and Timothy. Now notice how he addresses the letter. Who he addresses it to. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So this letter is not just a letter to the church leaders. It's not just to some supposed elite. But it's to all. After all, as we just discussed, this will be a letter seeking for a deep level of unity. So the letter is for all. And their unity will be founded on and found in and through Christ. The letter for all of its different paths and divergent side roads, it's all about Christ. He is the great source of all of their unity. He is the unifier and he is the very center of the letter. The name Christ, it appears more than any other noun in all of Philippians. It actually appears more than the next three nouns if you add them all together. Paul's just saying Christ, 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 Christ over and over and over again throughout Philippians. And it's because Christ is at the center that the letter, even in the midst of hardship, the letter bursts forth with joy. Paul makes his opening prayer with joy, Philippians 1.4. In 2.2, he says, make my joy complete. And then in 2.17, he even says this. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This letter is just filled with effervescent bubbling over joy. And we need that. Christ Church needs that after five weeks of studying Lamentations. But we all need that joy. The world, it can give you all sorts of moments of happiness. But only Christ brings joy. And joy is available to all those who are united together in the fellowship of the good news of God in Christ. So this letter is to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace. You might just breeze past that and say there's not much going on there. Paul opening this way is following the traditional Greco-Roman way of writing a letter. He starts with the name. Now, mind you, there are thousands upon thousands of letters from this exact period of time from the Greco-Roman world, and they all follow, follow this exact pattern. You start with your name, the sender, Paul, then the name of the addressee to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. And then normally, in almost all of those letters, you know what we see next? We see the word kairain, the Greek word kairain, which usually translates greetings. Paul to so-and-so, greetings. Frank from so-and-so, greetings, kairain. But Paul here has a subtle shift away from the standard opening to the letter. It's quite an anomaly, actually, in the history of the ancient world. He doesn't use kairain, but he uses the cognate. He uses the word charis, charis, 
the word that we get our word charity from, the word that translates grace. So this letter isn't from Paul to the Philippians greetings, but Paul to the Philippians grace. That's the subtle change right at the outset. And that subtle change opens us up to the very essence of the Christian message. It's a message that from the very beginning is about free grace. Paul's message, the gospel message, is a message of free grace. And it's a message of prison grace. It's a message of grace to those who are in bondage. And in this case, it's a message of grace to those in bondage from somebody who is in bondage. I mean, have you ever thought for a moment of just how much of the Bible is written from prison or from bondage or from the position of the marginalized? It's almost exclusively the Bible written from the vantage point of those who had little to zero social and political power. The Bible is slave literature. I mean, Moses writes large swaths of the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy while in slavery. The prophets were outcasts and pariahs. How many of the Psalms do you think David wrote while being hunted down? While hiding as Saul is trying to kill him? The gospel writers were outcasts. John is writing from prison on Patmos. And that's the John who writes the beloved gospel of John. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. Paul's in prison four different times, giving us all those beautiful prison epistles. Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon's. Yeah, the Bible is slave literature. It's prison lit. Someone wanted me to ask, someone asked me, you know, Mr. Sherritt, one of my students, what, what would genre would you categorize the Bible, this library of books? There's a bunch of different things going on there. But overall, I'd say it's probably prison lit. That's the way I'd categorize it. Put it alongside of, side of some of Dostoevsky's works. And I want us at the outset of this sermon series to really get that. I want us to think about that. That this letter, this letter of prison joy, it should really shine a glaring light on just how little we need for joy. That letter that's bubbling over with joy, 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 it's prison literature. I mean, we're so prone to think that there is somehow a correlation between stuff and joy. I will have joy once I get a new house, once I get a new car, once I graduate. I'll have joy once I'm married, once we finally have children. I'll have joy once I finally get grandchildren for my children. I'll have joy once I retire, once I get over this sickness. I'll have joy if I can just make it to the weekend. That's what you're thinking on Wednesdays, right? I'll have some joy on Friday night, maybe Saturday, and then the sadness will creep back in on Sunday night. You know what? Many times stuff gets in the way of our joy. Stuff is a joy killer. Stuff is a joy killer. I think here of the Russian dissident, Irina Radishinskaya. She just recently died, 2017. Radishinskaya was a poet, and she used poetry as a form of resistance against the Soviets in her imprisonment in the 1980s. I sent out one of her poems this week on the email, 
Elder David did when he sent out the email. You can go back and check out that poem later on if you want. But Radishinskaya, she'd recite poems, original or classic, to anyone who would hear. Her memorized poems would be written out and they'd be passed between the prisoners in these Russian prisons. And they cherished them in their time of suffering. And those little poems, they brought a spark of joy. She was eventually denied her writing materials. The Soviets couldn't have people have joy in their prisons. So let's take the pen and the pencil away from the poet. So she scratched the poems that she was writing onto bars of soap with a matchstick. And then she would wash them away after she had them memorized. When she got the chance, she transferred those poems that she had memorized onto cigarette paper. And they were eventually smuggled from Soviet prisons out of the prisons and published in the West. She needed so very little to have joy and to share it with others. This is the poem I sent you all this week. It's called The Sparrows of Buterka. The Sparrows of Buterka. Buterka was one of the Russian prisons. And this is what Radishinskaya writes. Now even the snow has grown sad. Let overwhelmed reason go. And let's smoke our cigarettes through the air vents. Let's at least set the smoke free. A sparrow flies up and looks at us with a searching eye. Share your crust with me. And in honorable fashion, you share it with him. The sparrows, they know who to ask for bread. Even though there's a double grill on the window and only a crumb can get through. What do they care whether you were on trial or not? If you fed them, you're okay. The real trial lies ahead. You can't entice a sparrow. Kindness and talents are no use. He won't knock at the urban double glazing. To understand birds, you have to be a convict. And if you share your bread, it means your time is done. Given Radishinskaya's Christian faith, when I read that, I can't help but hear a suggestion. A Holy Communion suggestion. I can't help but hear a Eucharistic suggestion. A John 6, I am the bread of heaven suggestion. I can't help but hear an act of redemptive grace suggestion. To understand birds, you have to be a convict. And if you share your bread, it means your time is done. I mean, who after all is the one that's keeping us in prison? If you share your bread, it means your time is done. Jesus taught about birds. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Yet Jesus taught about birds, and Jesus taught about bread. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate of the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. To understand birds, you have to be a convict. And if you share your bread, it means your time is done. Irina Radishinskaya, this poor sufferer, 
She understood birds. And so she understood bread. And that's all you need to understand joy. How little we need by earthly standards to produce in us joy as we pilgrim below and await our final, pure, full, and final liberation. So may God bless you as we study the book of Philippians. And may God bless all of us in our time here, our time of prison joy. Amen.